0: And this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the world of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new interview on Datacast. And today, I have the pleasure to speak with Chris madman Dr. Chris Martman is... Uh, the division manager of the AI, analytics, and innovative development organization in the IT and solution directorate at NASA JPL. At JPL, he reports to the CIO and uh, the director for IT, and he also manages uh, advanced IT research and open source and technology evaluation and user infusion capabilities. He is JPL's first principal scientist in the area of data science throughout his career at JPL. Uh, more than 19 years, he has conceived, realized, and delivered the architecture for the next generation of reusable science data processing system for various missions within NASA. Besides his involvement with JPL, he also contributes to open source and was a former director at the Apache Software Foundation, where he was uh, one of the initial contributors to the Nudge as a member of his project management committee, and which is the predecessor to Apache Hadoop. He also uh, conceived the Apache Tika framework. Nowadays, he very much contributes to TensorFlow, among other things, in the machine learning product. Uh, And finally, he is the director of the information retrieval and data science group at uh, USC and and, an adjunct associate professor. Uh, At USC, he teaches graduate courses in content detection analysis and in search engine and uh, information retrieval. Chris, uh, welcome to the show.
2: James, thanks for having me. appreciate it. Looking forward to it. By
1: way of uh, introduction, I I saw that you studied computer science at USC for your undergrad back in the late 90s. Uh, What about computer science that captured your interest and uh, how was your overall college experience?
2: At the time that I started studying computer science, I actually didn't know anything about it. So I was kind of like, was interested in technology, you know, in my later years of high school, I love sports. I would have played football if I would have grown past 5'9", and, you know, if I would have had the body for it, I would have loved to play at USC. I loved them at the time, and they weren't that good, but they'd been to the Rose Bowl in 1996. I was a real big fan. I love Keyshawn Johnson and John Robinson, and um, I never grew, and, you know all that. And so um, my last year, because I wasn't playing football, because I yeah, they didn't have honors football, and I, I realized I needed to invest in my mind. Um, I was in a lot of AP classes. And the only reason I didn't have a 5.0 was they didn't have honors, you know, football. So I, I went to uh yearbook and when i was in yearbook and helping put together the, the yearbook and the sport uh those pages i had to learn like adobe illustrator and learn more on the computers and stuff. i was always interested in computers like i had an apple 2e a long time ago and you know it was a like aftermarket piece of crap one and, and you know whatever but i had an apple 2e and i used to press Control c during the adventure game and make it so that the people on the adventure game would say bad words you know instead of the words they were supposed to say it make them say like swear words and stuff that plus yearbook those were my initial forays into, you know, computers until I got to USC. And then, you know, at USC, it was a lot of hard work. I mean, it was sitting in the computer labs, you know, learning Linux at the time, which I knew nothing about. I didn't know really, I mean, much about command prompts other than that experience with basic and all that, you know, back in the day, you know, the early classes at USC in sort of foundations of programming data structures is where it really kind of kicked off with me where I was like, oh, you could store state information and have algorithms do stuff on that and manipulate the state and have outputs and math, math I was always good at math but you know the, the real key for me was linear algebra you know and and I got good at that well that's all about transforming state in a way uh, you know through various transformations and computations and that was a nice analog to computer science as well so those things early on are really kind of what you know drove me you know to computer science and then eventually uh, early on my second year at usc i got a job at jpl and that got me into databases data modeling and, and stuff like that and I, you know we could talk more in the interview but the, the rest was sort of history after that hopefully that you know that's how i kind of got started
1: yeah absolutely thanks for sharing a bit about your your childhood and how you get into that so yeah talking about that experience with jpl right so during your time at usc you had an opportunity to work as a shuttle engineer NASA at nasa jpl Yeah, how did this opportunity come about and what were some of the initial projects that you contributed to?
2: So it came about because one night I was, you know, USC is a great place, but there wasn't, I'll just put it this way, a ton of interest from everybody, at least when I was studying computer science, they're staying late in the computer labs. I think it's like become sort of the norm nowadays because I don't know, socially, I mean, even in the pre-pandemic mode, people just really enjoyed that camaraderie and being together. But back when I was there, I was maybe one or two or three people that were in the computer lab at midnight, and I was looking for work. <laughs> I was looking for a job, basically. I, you know, I grew up in nothing. I mean, I, I had a great family and my parents and everything else, but we didn't have anything. I grew up in a trailer in Santa Clarita, and uh, I was paying my own way through USC, and so I, I needed a job, basically. And so I was up in the computer lab late one night. There was an email that came, and the bulletin, used to have bulletin boards back in the day, you know, before there was Twitter and everything else that you guys have now. And back then, we were on the bulletin board. I was looking for work. And a job posting came from a gentleman named Rob Raskin. He was an earth scientist, an atmospheric scientist, and he needed a, quote, database programmer to help him programming earthquake databases and and things like that. And I didn't know too much about earthquake databases or, you know, how to structure a model, but I knew I had a lot of, you know, determination and I was decent at programming and I thought I could do it. And that's how I got the initial job. So I got the job at JPL working for Rob Raskin. That was in the late 2000s. You know, and then I, I started at JPL, and then within three weeks, my first project was canceled. It was related to Digital Earth, you know, and things like that. It was an Al Gore project, and it was canceled. And so they they put me working on other Caltech projects with the scientists there. I, so I worked on databases for earthquakes. I worked on atmospheric science, uh, you know, SQL queries and things like that. And then I worked on basically how do you put files on disks in a kind of common place for scientists so that they can find them and search them later in the days before. Elasticsearch and Lucene and all that, you know, and, and before Google was really popular and all that.
1: This is like all happening why you're still a full-time student, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I worked full-time and I was uh, eventually, maybe within a year, I was working full-time at JPL too.
1: So how, I'm just curious, how to balance that? Like how how do you stay productive? You know, how just get it look like? Yeah.
2: Yes, yeah, so it was tough. I mean, you know, I didn't have much of a social life in high school, but to be honest, at USC, I wasn't having any of that anymore. Uh, you know, folks, your, your audience didn't hear our conversation, you know, pre-broadcast, but, you know, James has been to, U- uh, he's been in the USC area. You've been to LA, you know, you did some internships there, so you know how it is. And I was a guy who had grown up in Southern California, an hour from Los Angeles. I, I was born in Los Angeles. I'm, a, I'm an LA guy, but I grew up in a town called Santa Clarita, which is uh, if you, you know, your listeners don't know, you know, Santa Clarita is where kind of like west of the Mississippi, there's a six flags. That's what it's known for. It's got magic mountain. There's a six flags. There's a big theme park. And so that was the only thing that Santa Clarita was known for when I was growing up there. And then nowadays it's known for a lot of things. I mean, unfortunately there was a mass shooting there, you know, it was a tragedy and, you know, and other things. But when I was growing up there, it was known for six flags. So when I grew up in Santa Clarita and I came to LA how to balance life is I was sick of the not doing anything but learning. And to be honest, my grades took a hit. And but you know, this is what I tell people. And you know, my advice is you think you have to have the 4.0 or the 5.0. I passed USC with the minimum GPA to get a bachelor's, the minimum to get a master's and a minimum to get my PhD. And you know what, it's not written on my degree. It's not written anywhere. And you know, I, I think many people consider me among the top scientists in my era so it's not all about grades i had a life i enjoyed los angeles i met a lot of friends and celebrities and things like that and that's my advice you know is enjoy life while you're doing this stuff so
1: continue our conversation about that so in the next uh, six years or so you like i said you continue your education at usc when you got your master and then your phd both in uh, computer science right under the guidance of dr Uh, Nenat mafidovic your phd thesis is called Software Connectors for Highly Distributed and Voluminous Data-Intensive System, where you proposed uh, DISCO, which is a software architecture-based systematic framework for selecting software connectors based on eight key dimensions of data distribution. Well, first of all, how was your overall experience in grad school compared to, let's say, undergrad? And then, uh, yeah, can you share a little bit about your PhD dissertation, the, the motivation, as well as the findings?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I've, even though I'm normally long winded, I can, I can breeze through this real fast. You know, this, this hopefully won't be a long story. So I graduated with my bachelor's was working at JPL. I had met who eventually would become my wife at the time. And I was enjoying life. I had a job. I didn't have to go back. But of course, at the time, you know, I was, had a single income and my wife was working, had an income, but we wanted to buy a house and I wanted, I was a little motivated to, you know, make some more money and things like that. One of the ways you could do so back in the day, to do that was to get a master's degree. So that was my initial incentive. It was like, well, I'd been off for six months after my bachelor's, but let me, let me see if I can go back and get my master's and JPL will pay for it. So let me uh, go do that. And so the second class I took for my master's was a class called Software Engineering for Embedded Systems. Dr. Medvedevich Nino basically taught it. And I had no big interest in research at the time or anything, but it was all about reading papers, doing a presentation based on papers you've read and really studying topical things that were going on. And uh, I wasn't an expert in embedded systems. I hadn't been working on flight software at the time at JPL. But, um, you know, I've been working on a lot of ground software. But I was, you know, Nino was such an inspiring teacher and things like that. And I was like, you know, this is really interesting to me. I think I would like to do writing. I mean, if you go get it again, I could have just finished with the master's and, and I did. But it, it really inspired me. I was like, well, a couple things. I'm liking reading these papers. I'm liking the way that it's communicated, that science is communicated. I think I could do it. I love Nino. He was a rock star. He was a young PhD, you know, pre tenure and hungry, hungry as hell, you know, and had top notch people, right? Came out of a top notch group, software engineering group out of UCI at the time. Basically, who came out of that group? His academic brethren and sistren, his peers, were people like Roy Fielding, who invented the Apache Software Foundation and the REST architectural style, Jim Whitehead who invented the WebDAV framework, Jason Robbins, who invented Argo UML, which was the de facto Java UML represent. So this was like a powerhouse group that Nino came from. And Nino's big thing was architecture and component and connector architectural style. So I joined his group, I convinced him to take me. So the, the thing I'll say about my PhD dissertation and what I was doing is, what I was doing at JPL at the time is I had moved into basically data systems. I was working on a big project called the Planetary Data System, which is NASA's archive for all planetary science. And I was working on a non-NASA project called the Early Detection Research Network, which was a big bioinformatics network of cancer research information from specimens to biomarker information to, you know, derived, you know, proteomics data to all of these things. And so I was working in a lot of data systems. I was working on a lot of data systems design. And what my thesis ended up becoming was one recognition that I had was, first, the people that design these data systems can't tell you why they make certain decisions about the technologies that handle data dissemination. And there's data dissemination in a lot of these data systems, like for extract, transform and load, ETL, for dissemination to a scientist, you know, or many hundreds of scientists around the world. And all of the parameters for those data transfers and stuff are controlled by the scenarios, the data distribution scenarios, the number of users, the volume and the velocity, all of these things that became later important in big data, you know, in the context of big data and data science. And so my contribution was the following. In the architectures, the components and the connectors, you know, and and basically the designs for these data systems, what I did was the following. I came up with a representation of different data distribution use cases or scenarios, And then I wanted to work on algorithms. And it was like the early things in machine learning. I wanted to work on machine learning algorithms for prediction, selection, and things like that. And so what I did is I collected a bunch of decisions that were made and scenarios that were made. And then I made a set of algorithms to tell you or replicate the decisions that were made with high accuracy and confidence so that if you that designer didn't work at JPL anymore or didn't work at aerospace or company, you didn't need them because you could replicate the designs and the predictions that they were making with high confidence and accuracy. That was my dissertation. It was basically a suite of machine learning algorithms for selection and decision trade-offs and data systems, uh, algorithms for clustering and algorithms for visualizing them. And that was the disco work, you know, on that. So,
1: Do you apply that framework to your job at JPR? How does it be applied in in industry? Yeah,
2: yeah. So, you know, how the framework was applied is sort of interesting. So my research, you know, didn't result in the development of any particular tool, although I wrote code for it and things like that. And it didn't result in you know, like an extension to Eclipse or anything for software modeling or, you know, software engineering and things like that. And so those types of things that happen or get affected, you know, intelligent assistants or, you know, IDEs and things like that, you could think of what I did as sort of room for that. And so, yeah, it, it was never applied in that way. You know, what it did do, I think, was change the way that we captured engineering data you know related to these systems at JPL and also define processes like software processes for evaluating really data system designs you know across a number of of different projects and systems and so that's kind of what it did but yeah i didn't i didn't make like a you know long lived open source project for them you know or anything and and there wasn't enough of a community sort of around it you know at the time so i mean arguably i didn't invent in my dissertation, something like Hadoop or Tika or Nutsch or Spark or anything like that. But I did really learn a lot about machine learning and also help JPL do better engineering design. So.
1: I see, yeah. Basically, bringing in knowledge in terms of what data to capture. And like you mentioned, changing the processes of designing system to capture the most relevant data right to be used. So, yeah, more on that educational aspect, which is definitely sort of like being the birth to some major related work. And as we transition to, you know, kind of talking about that, I believe towards the end of your PhD, you start getting involved with the Apache Software Foundation. More specifically, you developed the original proposal and plan for Apache Tika, uh, which is a content detection and analysis toolkit in collaboration with Jerome Sharon to extract data in the Panama Papers, exposing how wealthy individuals exploit offshore tax regimes. Can you share the story behind such involvement?
2: Yeah, totally. So, you know, it it all relates to academia, and also ties back to JPL a little bit. Towards the latter end of my PhD, I took a class on search engines. And um, it was taught by a guy at USC, uh, Ellis Horwitz, who at the time was the chair of the computer science department. He's been a chair a couple of times at USC. And Ellis was great. Uh, If you looked across the world, especially in the U.S. at the time, there were maybe two or three classes in 2005 on search engines. One of them was at Stanford, part of the Infolab, Hector Garcia Molina. I mean, these are the people who invented search engines in the web. But USC had one of them. And so I was in Ellis' class, and uh, our final project, he encouraged us to uh, basically do in this framework called NUTCH. And NUTCH was an open source project. It was an effort by Doug Cutting, who invented Lucene, and a number of other amazing things like Hadoop and you know what eventually became Cloudera, the company, and things like that. Ellis encouraged us to use Nutch for our final project. So my final project was a really simple syndication, and I don't know if your viewers even know what that is, but it's an RSS parsing framework. It was a RSS was a newsfeed format, data format to kind of publish out news items and have subscribers, like your browser and other things, subscribe to those items and and get it. And in Nutch at the time, they didn't have any parsing facilities for RSS. And I was really into news feeds and news and and the pre-social media stuff at the time. And so, yeah, I wrote an RSS parser. That was my final project in Nutch. And that got me really involved in Apache and open source. And I was like, this is amazing. You know, peer review, you know, you get people kind of helping you you know, and it just, it was a, a, a vibrant community. And so eventually, within a few months, I became a Nutch Committer based on that contribution and other things. I met Jerome and a number of, I met Doug, I met a guy named Andre Bialaki, I met Mike Caffarella and a number of people who basically would go on to do like amazing things. Like Caffarella, you know, wrote the first version of HBase, you know, the open source implementation of Google's BigTable. You know, and and things like that. Um, And then he went on to to found a company that Apple bought for $200 million. I mean, Doug founded Claire. I mean, these are, you know, the royalty of computer science, right? And so I was working alongside of them. Fast forward to about 2007, and Doug and Mike had started implementing Hadoop um, inside of Nutch. They didn't call it Hadoop at the time, they called it Nutch MapReduce and that's distributed file system. And it was based on the Google papers. And Google did a great job of basically publishing in the open literature, all these amazing products that they had developed inside of their company. That's the one thing, no matter what you, if you think Google's evil or bad, or <laughs> one thing you can say about Google is academically, they've, they've really put a stake in the ground at publishing and giving a lot of system detail about their work. And so Doug and Mike In order to evolve Nutch beyond the 100 million web page mark into the 4 billion web page, which was the state of the art at the time for the web indexes, they needed to re architect Nutch. And so they did. And uh, they built it on top of the structures of MapReduce and like Google File System, which again, they called Nutch MapReduce and Nutch Distributed File System. Fast forward a year later, after they've done that, and there's this groundswell of people that want to take Hadoop as a separate project. And there was a lot of reasons for that, out of nudge, you know. They wanted to basically, uh, well, at the time Yahoo was investing 20 developers. They gave Doug a team. Doug went to get a job at Yahoo. And Yahoo went all in from Eric Baldischweier, who was their VP of engineering, all in on redoing their entire web graph based on Hadoop, just that technology. And so that alone and the velocity at which they were developing code was enough that they wanted to make Hadoop a separate project. And so there was a lot of other people that wanted to do other projects. Nutch was this big, grandiose web crawler, but inside of it, it had a distributed file system, a distributed computational platform. It had a user interface, a method for ranking and scoring. And it also had inside of it really a content detection framework. It had a parser framework. It had a mime detection system to detect file types. It had a language detector. And so there were a number of us that were like, well, Everybody else is kind of splitting out into their specialties. You know, we want to take a piece of this code and just only work on that. Like, I don't care about building distributed systems. You know, sure. I mean, I know I had to learn how to do that, but it wasn't my interest. I was really interested in information retrieval, clustering, data, and things like that. And so Jerome and I initially pitched to make Tika as a split out from Nutch along the same lines of Hadoop. And it took a while to basically get people to kind of accept it. It took about a year and a half, and it actually took a guy named Juka Zitting, who was working at Day Software, which eventually was acquired by Adobe. And he was working on a spec and a system called, which eventually was called Jackrabbit, which was an implementation of a content management system. And he had like a real hardcore use case for having a singular library outside of Nutch to do content detection. and. Yuka knew a lot more about Apache than Jerome and I did, who were kind of new. And Jerome had his own things. He was starting a search engine called Fretch in France, like the French nudge. He became a CTO of a company called WebPulse. You know, he was doing a lot. So he didn't have as much time anymore. So it was really myself and Yuka who basically pushed Tika over the finish line and became a project, you know, and then started to make it its own separate project. And then for me, what happened is, you know, Juca was around. Um, there was a guy, Bertrand Delcriatz, who was an Adobe guy, a day guy, was really helpful. A number of other people really helpful in getting it off the ground. And then, yeah, like like um, about a year into Tika being its own project, we had made like 10 or 15 releases, It beca- you know, it started to like get into the financial systems, like, you know, uh, basically Equifax and, and companies like FICO eventually were deploying it. I was figuring out how to get it everywhere inside of NASA. And so then, yeah, like that was sort of the first generation. The second generation of Tika development, to finally answer your question, where did the Panama Papers come from, was I was, I had moved away from mission engineering development and science, and I was working on technology development with like building a big program for technology at JPL. And I had been doing a lot of work at the time with DARPA and the Defense uh, Advanced Research Projects Agency. And we had gotten a project with them called NEMEX. And what we were doing on that project was helping to stop human trafficking by building search engines technologies that could mine the deep and the dark web for information, to do bulk analysis, extraction, and things like that. And the reason that that was important to NASA is that our data for earth science and planetary science is sort of hidden in the deep web. It's behind shopping carts, Ajax, JavaScript. It's not easy to get to when you get to it. It's like heterogeneous file formats. And so as it turns out, the people who were doing human trafficking, weapons and arms tracking, trafficking and the illegal drug sales did the same thing using bulletin board sites and sites like Craigslist and Backpage and stuff. So the same tech that we were helping law enforcement with also had a great applicability back to other earth science and planetary science systems and scrapers and crawlers and search. And so anyways when we were doing that and really really enhancing tika so that it could support multimedia file formats so that it supported deep learning and machine learning to get out you know information from these a journalist also programmer matthew karuna gazinglia ended up you know coming on our mailing list for tika asking a bunch of questions writing a node tika library And then we gave him a bunch of help, helped him out. And we found out this was the guy that was basically analyzing the Panama Papers data leak, you know, and, and he was using Tika to do it. He then came back on the list after it became public and is like, yeah, that's what I was doing. I was using Tika. Thank you for everything and all your help, you know, and then his work eventually won a Pulitzer Prize, you know, but that's the whole long mapping of how it got used for that.
1: Yeah. Thanks a lot for talking about the details of joint involvement and you know, all the people that you met along the way and how how that journey come to be. And I'm sure we're going to talk about the MIMEX project later on. First of all, like in 2011, right, as you're talking about Tika, you wrote this book called Tika in Action, which you co-authored with Juka Ziding, who we just mentioned. Just like, could you mind discussing the process of writing that book?
2: The process of writing the book was like, I think over Christmas, I was having a lot of fun uh, in 2009, December, and... I got it in me around that time we were near a tika 1.0 and Juka and i and some others had been discussing there is no kind of canonical guide for tika it had decent documentation but there was a lot of appetite at the time in the in action series with manning there was a lucene in action uh you know wicked in action there was a number of like apache technologies in action and we're like hey tika is a candidate for this and there's no definitive guide and so I think I was like drunk one night or something. And I got the idea, hey, we need to do this. And I was talking with Juka and he's like, yeah, let's go for it. And so, yeah, so basically we decided to do it. It took me a year and a half. It was a very interesting experience. Manning was a great publisher. We had such a great supportive community of people in Tika and it was like I said, it was nearing 1.0. It was near that time when the financial people started using it. Adobe was using it, NASA was using it. And it just sort of made sense. And there was no guide at the time to doing that. So it was a lot of extra work. I told my wife in 2011, when it was published, I'd never write a book again because I had done the PhD in tw- 2007. I'd finished it. Then I, in four years later, I wrote a book, stayed up late at night, you know, all that. And so I said, oh, I want to do this again. And then, you know, nine years later I did and we could talk about that and that's what I'm doing now. But, you know, a- anyways, um, seems like every decade I get the itch to do this. But yeah, the-, the process was Tika needed a definitive guide. Juka and I were game and we did it. So,
1: And I'll be sure to put link you to the, to the book on the show notes so uh, interested people can, can check it out. So yeah, back to, let's talk about your, sort of your involvement with USC a little bit more. So since 27, you have, been an adjunct professor in the Department of Computer Science at uh, UC uh, Vitiba School of Engineering. In the first couple of years of your professorship, you taught several semester of a course titled Software Architectures. What are some of the essential principles and elements of software architecture that this course covers?
2: The genesis of that class was that Nino incepted that class, and at the time, he had just made a new book called Software Architecture Foundations, Practices, and Theories with um, two people, Richard Taylor, who was Nino's former advisor and a former dean at UC Irvine, who led that amazing software engineering group in the mid-90s, and Eric Dashafi, who was one of Dick Taylor's students at Irvine. He would be like Nino's cousin, you know, or whatever, academically. And uh, Eric is also the deputy CIO today of Aerospace and uh, an FFRDC, you know, on the West side who does a lot of basically systems architecture and engineering work. So I still work with Eric a lot nowadays, too. So Nino and them had written a book, Software Architecture Foundations Theory and Practice. And it was all about really, if you think about it, the evolution of software design in the component and the connector style. You know, thinking about software components, how to model them, thinking about, different ways of how architecture itself like normally people would consider software process different from software architecture uh, and evaluation like process might be agile or waterfall but you know architecture is a phase in the waterfall process or architecture is something that you're you know constantly doing an agile, but really it's about the code that's driving everything. And the architecture is whatever the as-built architecture is. Nino and Eric and Richard or Dick Taylor, they they basically said, architecture is everywhere. It's a living artifact. Um, It's influenced by styles. The interactions matter, things like that. And so that class at USC was all about that book and that, you know, theory of software architecture. And so at the time, the class was 150 students. And so after I graduated, Nino and I talked about maybe him splitting his class and giving me half of the students to help him out. And so that's what I did. So the first few years, Nino and I were teaching the same class and really kind of working together based on the research of our, his group, you know, to do that, you know. And so my specialty was in data systems, software connectors and things like that. But I knew the rest of the material because I had lived it, you know, for four and a half years in our group. And Nino is an expert in everything in general. And so that was that class, you know, and then, and maybe you'll, you're going to mention this or whatever, but, you know, just to kind of tee it up, you know, I, I moved away from teaching that class and eventually into things like search engines and, and some other things, which I'll, you know, I can be happy to talk about today. So
1: Yeah, yeah, let's, let's talk about it, right? So you taught uh, another grad level course called uh, information retrieval and web search engine, and uh, basically the class a foster student, a complete treatment of web search engine. So right, yeah, what are the core concepts and uh, practical exercise that students could gain from you know, that course?
2: Yeah, so that course was another kind of recipe after the Nino-Chris model. Nino was my professor advisor. We split the class or whatever. So at the time, uh, Ellis Horwitz, who was also on my committee, and remember, if you recall, was the guy who taught me search engines and was really, he was like advising Google and worked on a lot of legal things for search engines excellent former chair of the department we split his class and I started to teach or I would teach like the spring version of his class when he didn't want to teach or you know thing or I teach the summer one and uh, that class was basically three pronged that class taught you the foundations of search engines so Ellis's expertise was more algorithms and mine was more systems So my version of that class focused more or or I would say less on teaching you the hardcore inverted index algorithm and here's a B tree and all that. Whereas Ellis wanted to focus on all of the core search engine algorithm stuff because that was his expertise. He was a math guy, you know, and and that was fantastic. But we always really did a good job of complementing each other because when I taught it, I focused on. Well, here's all the systems and the real things that you got to put together to build search engines nowadays. So I didn't give as deep a vertical depth of like, here's how you build an inverted index and the algorithms. But what I did is I taught people how to use Lucene, Solar, Elasticsearch, Nutch, how to do web crawling. My big focus was on crawling, politeness. Um, And then eventually what became, I would say, search engine visualization and things like D3 and how do you, you know, demonstrate and do search analytics and, and, you know, show those types of things. And that morphed actually into eventually what became the 599 class that I taught on big data and content detection analysis. And now today, the data science class that, that I teach uh, on data science in large scale environments.
1: Yeah. So let's continue and, and talk about that class, right? So content detection and analysis for, for big data. Actually, like I read this article that you shared with me a bit a, a while back that, you know, there's student in that class. Even did a project when they had to look look at thousands of document sightings at UFOs <laughs> to discover how different factors such as like movie release and what the events can influence citing patterns so that was a very fun rate from the USC page so overall, like how was this cost uh, different from your previous information retrieval and search engine costs
2: yeah, so information retrieval and in search engines is more like the history, the algorithms, the systems to build search engines, like what's behind Google. What's behind you know, if you wanted to build a Google, what would you need to do? The content detection and analysis class assumes a Google exists or search engines exist, and so it's centered around okay, now that you have these facilities, how do you put data together? And so, we spend a lot of time talking about big data, the five V's volume, velocity, variety, you know, veracity, and value. And, you know, we also talk about data mashup, the fact that data systems are no longer closed loop. And when you put data together, you know, from various sources, you can make inferences about it, you know, and so big focus of the class is initially having a topical data set. And so I collect data all the time that I don't analyze right away. I might, it might take me two or three years later to find the right opportunity or class or project to analyze it. And so I've got data lying around from various projects that I haven't gone deep on yet. And so that particular semester I had a UFO sightings data set actually that eventually became part of Kaggle and things like that. And so we went deep that semester. And the first thing that we teach kids in that class is enrichment. How do you mash data up together and add features to it? You know, and by today things like machine learning, you know, so some of the questions that I said for the UFO data set is, Hey, okay, are all these sightings within 50 miles of an airport? Add a feature that tells me that. Are all these sightings in places where, unfortunately, maybe the population has an alcohol problem or things like that? So I gave them a bunch of suggestions about things they could explore. And the first assignment is all about enrichment, adding features to the data set. The second assignment is all about content extraction at scale. So now that you've got a data set, you've added a bunch of features. So maybe you've gone from, seven columns and a thousand rows to something like 50 columns and 10,000 rows. Now I want you to do a big processing over this and I want you to do it on Hadoop or Spark or using some Python multiprocessing and I want you to do enrichment. So the second assignment was them doing a big OCR extraction of unstructured sightings from British UFO files that don't look like the nice CSV sightings that I gave them that are you know very structured. Take the OCR from the British OCO, uh, uh, the British scanned sightings, and turn them into 10,000 more rows in your nice tabular, you know, structure. Make sure it has the same features. Create a content extraction pipeline to do that. And then the final assignment is always visualize and communicate your data science. You know, um, now that you've got your data, your enriched features, your things like that show me a, D- a D3 visualization and communicate and let someone interact with it, you know, do search analytics basically. And so that, that was that class. I've done it with UFO data. I've done it with polar data. I've done it with job data in South America. <laughs> you know, there's lots of different data that we've done it with. And so, yeah, so that's the class.
1: Yeah. That, that sounds like, you know, the cost really tossed in the end to end pipeline of data science from, you know, gathering, cleaning the data to do EDA to, modeling to, you know, like you said, augmentation and building models and, and visualization. Yes, so I, I guess like the more interesting I hear, like students get exposed to tools like, you know, Hadoop and and Elasticsearch, which really like the, the fundamentals of industry uh, data science. And um, I think definitely that's something a, a bit lacking like in, in the academic context, really uh, student has a chance to like work with the, the, the technologies. So it seems like uh, you really engage your student in that sort of practical mindset and, and really, learn how, you know, real-world data set works, right? Mm.
2: Totally, James. That's exactly right. That's the intent. So. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, awesome. At ESC, you're also the director of the Information Retrieval and Data Science Group. The mission of the group is to research and develop new methodology and open source software to analyze, uh, ingest, process, and manage big data and turn it into information. So can you share an overview just uh, about some of the uh, research activity within the group? and uh, maybe a couple of prominent projects.
2: Yeah, so that group, you know, at various times over the last seven years has been large and medium-sized and small. So we've trained something like 40 master's students as research assistants. We've done maybe three dozen undergraduate research assistants and three postdocs through the group. And the group has been funded a lot by NSF, you know, so we had a big couple of big grants. One of them was on polar cyber infrastructure, basically building polar search engines for polar data, You know, pulling together data from the Arctic that's unstructured and ugly and making nice visualizations and search engines. There's a website called polar.usc.edu that we made and collaborated with the National Snow and Ice Data Center on. And then we also partnered with the DARPA Memex program at the time, and we were focusing on all non-law enforcement use cases, maybe for science search engines, but we were working on common open source software with the students with that. We worked on NUTCH, what eventually became Sparkler, um, which is an evolution of NUTCH to run on Spark, completely you know developed whole cloth, Greenfield, and lots of more contributions to Tika. And to deep learning and machine learning. And so USC data science today is a very thin, you know, uh, group. We don't have, you know, I don't have a dozen research assistants anymore. And, you know, it, I've, got, I've got like one or two, because that's about all the time that I have given my commitments and roles kind of everywhere else, at, especially at NASA. And, you know, we graduated our postdocs. We, we did all that. So that's great. And so the things that we work on today a lot, we, we spend a lot of time working on Sparkler, the web crawler. We have a number of like Docker and and other things that we build like extraction capabilities using and then Dockerized extraction. So like augmentations of Tika with models and machine learning and things like that. And all of the stuff that we do is in our GitHub repository and organization under USC data science. That's really kind of like the research arm of a lot of the work that we're operationalizing and doing, you know, in the team at NASA. Um, And it's also a good pipeline for getting students from USC or identifying talent, teaching classes, and then giving the people in the classes at USC a chance to get in the research group. It's just a lot thinner pipe, you know, to get in the research group and then maybe to partner with someone at JPL NASA, at another FFRDC lab industry. And we've put a number of people in the industry. Half of the search engines teams at most of the big web properties I've helped to fill through our group.
1: Yeah, that, that's a fantastic. Just curious, like, you see overall, like, how's the interest for, like, you know, data science and at the university in general from your experience teaching this class and maybe engaging with other professors sort of in the same domain, like, what sort of student interest overall? Yeah.
2: I think the groundswell for data science is huge today. And I think pretty much practically, it's what everyone kind of comes in and wants to study. It was so much so that the folks that weren't necessarily teaching data science were trying to figure out ways to rebrand their classes, uh, you know, to kind of call them data science and things like that. So There's a huge groundswell. It's basically what everyone wants to learn nowadays. And then the next, next job is like AI engineer. But if you think about it, that's really a specialization in a way of data science. Data science is kind of the common horizontal language speak and discipline. And now AI uh, engineer, RPA, you know, robotic process automation or, you know, UX expert, you know, AI person. You know, these are all just specializations on top of the kind of core data science capability. So...
1: Yeah. And that you see that all falls under the uh, Viteba School of Engineering, right?
2: Yeah, most of it is in the engineering school, although, you know, there are discipline oriented data science efforts in in other schools, you know, spatial sciences, uh, you know, is one of them, you know, places that you could imagine, you know, even there's a data journalism data science thing, you know, in our um, Annenberg, you know, school and, you know, our communication school and things like that. So it's kind of everywhere, but, but Viterbi has the biggest groundswell, I'd say, of like the engineers implementing, say, the back end kind of core motherhood and apple pie for that you know so
1: awesome yeah thanks for sharing the on on the front simultaneous with your academic affiliation so you continue your industry work at nasa jpl like throughout this whole time right you have risen through various uh, leadership roles uh, member of technical staff senior software architect principals data scientist deputy chief technology and innovation officer most recently division manager for the ai analytics and uh, innovation team Uh, Can you unpack the evolution of your career at JPL?
2: So the first 10 years... Um, I sort of was mostly in engineering and science and mostly working on in the first five years research so leveling up learning about Apache figuring out how to get Java into data systems and implementing them initially on research data systems and then joining missions so I worked on OCO I delivered the ground data system for the orbiting carbon observatory the end post preparatory project which is the next generation polar orbiting satellites soil moisture active passive um, and that project and then Um, My last sort of mission experience was on airborne projects. I worked, I was a compute lead for the Airborne Snow Observatory, which was an airborne mission in the Western US looking at snow melt and uh, the rate of snow melt and then snow depth, which is snow accumulation, which eventually led to water estimates, which are big things. So that was my first 10 years. After 10 years at JPL, I was a little missioned out, (laughs) you know, and I wanted to go into technology development. I wanted to build tech. I wanted to have real resources to do tech, Um, Because a lot of the tech, it's like hidden under a budget and you don't have enough resources to do what you want. So you spend a lot of your own time doing it. And so my last 10 years at JPL, the first five of them, I've been there 20 years, the first five, you know, from year 10 to 15, I was building technology programs with DARPA, NSF, commercial industry, and whatever, to the tune of about a 50, 60, $70 million technology program. So, you know, maybe something like 50 to 100 FTEs, maybe like finding ways to build out all the tech that I told you about the open source tech, but also tech that we deployed vertically in a lot of places. That was then. And so I, I basically kind of moved away after being the chief architect in the instrument and science data systems division in year 10 to 15, where my role was basically to teach everybody how we did it. And then to build those technology programs, I was working on different things. To I moved to the IT department by three and a half years ago or whatever. And my goal at the time was not to lead technical teams, but it was to mature the people and the discipline of data science at JPL to grow a bunch more data scientists, to deploy them throughout the lab, to do it for innovation, for missions, business, engineering, and science. And so my last three and a half, four years, you know, where I was the deputy CTO and then now I'm the division department manager reporting to the CIO, basically the evolution of my career is I've got the lab's talent and staff in AI analytics and innovation. And my goal is to make sure all the projects that need them, not just in IT doing ticket analysis or, you know, looking at, you know, basically delivery of cloud or things like, not just focused on those things or billing analytics. Those are all great. And we do work on all that, but also helping AI for the missions, because if we help AI for Mars surface robotics and things, we help out RPA for it, you know, and things like that. And so that's, that's really what I'm doing. It's less of like me getting out, p- promoting myself and all that anymore. It's my job is to promote the people in the discipline.
1: So let's dig a bit deeper on a couple of the um, specific projects, big projects you would involved at JPL. A s- significant project that you focus on uh, is Memex. I think we talked about it, mentioned a little bit about it earlier in our chat. But uh, the goal of uh, Memex is to basically develop software that advances online search capabilities to the deep web, the dark web, and non-traditional content. Can you maybe go over a couple of the software frameworks and uh, the applications built um, under this, this MemeX project?
2: Sure, yeah. So a couple of the things you might be familiar with is that what came out of this project was something called, well, there were two sort of families of it. So MemeX was all about, okay, there's an infinite source of information that we don't do a good job of of searching. And the analogy is, you know, it's kind of like the ocean, you know, the ocean covers 70% or more of the earth and we've explored less than 5% of it, right? You know, and things like that. Well, the same analogy applies to the deep web. And at the time, the dark web, there existed no Google for the dark web, which was the web on Tor and the Onion routing network. There was no catalog of it um, until Memex came along and built one. On the deep web, which is the public internet hidden behind web services, logins, forms, bulletin boards, And then eventually, multimedia content, because most search engines, when it got to an image or a video back then, it didn't do anything with it. I mean, Google and Bing could, but they only did stuff with it in the case of where it would make them or monetize things for ads and clicks. So they didn't have interest in helping law enforcement, you know, at the time, basically get to that content, but maybe stop a human trafficker or stop someone from selling an automatic rifle or, you know, the different use cases that they were trying to do in law enforcement. And so, The first part of Memex was basically acquisition, bulk acquisition over that space. And so we enhanced a number of crawlers on the program to do it. We enhanced Nutch. We built a new crawler called Sparkler. All of them native support for things like Selenium, things like PhantomJS, things like Ajax, JavaScript, or whatever. So in other words, the crawler became a browser. So the crawler was just a little mini browser. So the same way that you saw the web, you know, that you saw it, which is the way that you needed to see it to get at the content and to navigate it is the way that our crawlers that we built saw it. Also, Scrapey, Scraping Hub, all the work that was done to enhance those technologies in the Python world, not just the Java and the Scala world, but in the Python world, we enhanced them to do the bulk acquisition. Then there was an enrichment phase of Memex, which was to build a bunch of technologies that could basically take the acquired content, run machine learning, intelligent extraction over them, and whatever, and get out more features. So if you had an image, a video, or things like that, we identified all the people, places, locations, things in them, and then built relationships from them. And if you think about it, this is exactly the type of tech that they needed today in data leaks, data journalism, things like the Panama Papers, where you have a big tranche of data you collected or someone dumped. And you need to extract and identify the relationships in them. So that's exactly what we did in the enrichment phase of Memex. So technologies that came out of that, Stanford's Deep Dive, which eventually became a company called Lattice that Apple bought for $200 million. You know, other technologies, you know, that were enhanced, uh, you know, adding a lot of TensorFlow, machine learning extraction to things like Tika, you know, those types of things. And then there was the phase of Memex, which is interactive search, graph, D3, and we made significant enhancements to those technologies to do that, so.
1: Yeah, that, that sounds like a very comprehensive offering of the, of the whole software suite. The application is definitely like covering from multimedia to right? So audio images, text, it's a lot of great things. Another JPR project that you were involved with is X-Data, a research effort to develop new computational techniques and open source software tools to process and analyze big data um, yeah, could you mind just briefly touching on this project?
2: Yeah, so the idea for Xdata, which came before Memex, it was the same program manager. It was a gentleman named Chris White, who now leads a team at Microsoft Research. Basically, Chris was the guy in Afghanistan that was working for General David Petraeus, and he was the data guy. He would, His team would... You know out there in Afghanistan, deployed they would basically do analysis of intelligence and other data and generate a report basically for the generals and stuff like a two minute readout and What Chris noticed out there is you could move a lot more fast and furious with open source software and deploying things because you were deployed operationally in the field when Chris got back you know over here to the states and he started to get into program management, he found it was really hard in the government to reuse software that you've already paid for. So you pay one contractor to build some analytics and visualization software, you wanna reuse it on another program, you gotta pay the same contractor again to do it. And so reuse was really hard and the use of open source was really hard. And so xData was a program whose main goal was to find a way to develop and fund software so that it went to the open source foundation so that they could keep it. Like, go fund the Python Software Foundation to develop things like PyData, NumPy, Numba, Blaze, you know, Dask, things that eventually, go fund them directly. Don't fund them through a contractor. Go fund the Apache Software Foundation and things like Nutch and Tika and all this stuff. Go fund them, just or fund people that are directly working with them. So they put all their analytics, big data projects, code, visualization, they put it there. And then once it's there, the government can reuse it by pulling, doing a software pull of that open source software in open source land and using it in whatever ways that they want to do. So in other words, bypassing or streamlining the technology transfer process through the use of open source. That was the goal of big data and X data. I'm sorry. That was the goal of the X data program is to build open source, big data analytics and visualization software and to make it reusable in the government. And so they were very successful. What came out of big X data was spark the Apache spark pro- uh, project uh, Vega D3 You know, basically what came out of that was the funding as well of companies like Continuum Analytics and Continuum I.O., which became Anaconda, you know, and I mean, you can point back to, you know, just like MIT's Julia, you know, amazing things like just game changing everything. And again, it was one of these DARPA programs where you looked around the room and this was the royalty of computers, you know, there basically.
1: Yeah, that's a fascinating uh, anecdote on the origin of all these like very well-known frameworks these days as an insider on that project like what are the criteria used to judge you know whether an open source project gonna get funded or or get selected by this project yeah yeah
2: so i mean the criteria for selection i didn't have anything to do with i was myself one of the people who was selected but i can tell you the criteria for use um kind of went like this basically the things that moved on from that program and that are really successful today are things that people were able to put together into like a USC data science project in the classes that I teach. In other words, they were technologies that if we had a data set that DARPA gave us, they were ones that you could quickly use to put together to do enrichment, to do a data visualization, to do a big content extraction pipeline, and to show it off and communicate it to users. So the the real best of breed tech that came out of X Data was everything that fit that criteria. And at the end of the day, the 20 plus software projects and libraries or whatever really got pared down to like seven things. And they were the seven things that were part of that repeatable pattern to do data science that you could throw any data set at it and set of questions that you wanted to ask and you could build an easy, quick prototype to do it. That was really how, you know, stuff moved on, so.
1: Continue to our chat about open source. You will also... One of the developers, principal developers for object oriented data technology, ODT, which is an open source data management system framework, originally developed by JPL and then donated to Apache Software Foundation. Can you just explain this, this framework for the um, uninitiated?
2: Yeah, so ODT was basically our science data processing system software. So when I started, you know, like I said, in my first 10 years, the first five were building kind of Java code for research data systems. And the the latter five of my first 10 years were then working on missions to build kind of operational science data systems code. We tried to take the research Java code that we had and put it on these missions that had basically requirements that were like, well, the older science missions, in 10 years they captured 10 gigabytes of data and you know they maybe processed tens of jobs per day to the first requirement in 2005 for OCO was that it had to process 10,000 jobs per day and that in the first three months it had to capture 150 terabytes of data. And so that type of shift necessitated basically re-architecting all of our ground data systems, basically our science processing systems. And so ODT was the result of that. It was influenced by Hadoop, Java, you know, every Lucene, Solar, Nutch. So it it's native that. And what it is is it's a framework for building science data systems. It's got a file management component, a workflow system, a resource manager. These were all way ahead of their time. Like YARN in Hadoop too is we had a resource manager in ODT way before then, you know, and things like that. But This was our sort of framework and ODT was a thin framework, a thin set of glue code and horizontal and vertical scale out services to basically put together file cataloging and archiving, uh, independent data processing workflow, running science algorithms, and then allocating those executions out onto both local resources as well as into the cloud. And things like that, and making sure the provenance was captured, making sure science algorithms were easily integratable, and things like that. And so it really was the code that we used to deliver like 10 years of Earth Science missions. Mm-hmm. So it exists today. It's the back end for some like, you know, usable systems today. There's a system called Drat, which used to be an Apache project but isn't anymore, which is a code audit tool that's built on top of ODT, um, and some other things. But admittedly, ODT development has slowed you know, and, and things, but it really serves as a good example of how to do, you know, those types of systems.
1: Thanks for really kind of emphasizing on that ship that you mentioned, right, from working with local data, very small amount to like shipping terabyte of work. And it seems like this system, like you mentioned, resource management is very important. You can allocate, you know, appropriate computational of power for, for the teams that are, to invest it on a specific workflow. Let's dig a little bit deeper on, on that front. So you mentioned that you use ODT for various systems that work with science data for financial for transmission. And in particular, your work there powers some of the architecture for some of the next generation of reusable science data processing system, such as the orbiting carbon observatory space mission and the soil moisture active passive earth science mission. What are some of the major data and engineering challenges to support systems at those massive scale? just continuing our conversation from a previous question.
2: Yeah, so I mean, at, for OCO, it was the shift from tens of jobs per day to tens of thousands, and from 10 years collecting 10 gigabytes of data to the first three months collecting 150 terabytes. Like, flat out, that was the difference in, in that class of mission. Snap was very similar, it's the same thing. Like, basically, there was a big shift around 2005, and, and really, the draw for that was a couple things. First, instrument resolutions got a lot higher. You know it's kind of like think about your iphone when it came out in 2005 2006 if you even had one or remember that i don't know if that was you know before yours or your audience's time but there was this big shift from the size quality and type of data that your instrumentation could capture and the same thing happened in science too so whereas before they would you know they just didn't have the instrumentation to capture big data and things like that around that time they had You know, cameras that were generating 10 gigabyte images, you know, with pixels and stuff. And so they could take more data. And if you had more data, the scientists could envision a lot more processing and things that you could do with it, you know, at different resolutions that they didn't have before. And, and so those were the drivers and, and also at the time, you know, really distributed computing cloud computing. You know, it wasn't a commodity yet, but, you know, places like Google and, and others were saying, hey, you could do this. You could do basically the evolution of the shared nothing architecture, you know, putting together a bunch of independent computers that don't share anything, but networking them together. And instead of at the hardware level, solving the reliability issues with them and the distributed computing, doing it with a software framework like MapReduce or things like that. And so all of that was sort of a perfect storm and a groundswell for really science to evolve. And that's kind of what happened from 2005 to 2010 is it was really, you know, a genesis of science, a renaissance, if you will, of science data processing and also science, you know, out of it. And so the systems themselves had to evolve, you know, too.
1: So is that more of a scientific challenge or more of an engineering challenge? Yes.
2: You know, it can be both, James. It could be both. The scientific challenge is, what do you do with more data if we could get it for you? You know, could you make, you know, more more high fidelity, high time frequency predictions if you had it, and maybe you were imputing data before you were guessing the differences between it? Um, could you do it at a higher spatial resolution if we could get it for you more often or in a bigger swath because we have a better, you know, pixel camera, you know, things like that? Um, those are some of the science questions that you could answer. All of those translate into engineering requirements. It's like, well, we have more data, we're going to have to store it somewhere and we're going to have to make it available to this many more people. How do we do that in a distributed way? To get the data that the scientists need, we're going to have to process it a lot faster and quicker and, you know, at a higher fidelity. That's an engineering problem. How do we do that?
1: And then an, an, another quick question regarding that is like, how do you see distributed system evolve since at the point is designing it and compared to it like today? If you like, like say a new startup try to try to like you know working with distributed system, then what what, what are the tools that that you would recommend them to use?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, the evolution today is, is kind of like before. It's, you know, it's, it's funny. It's history repeating itself. It's like, well, to program, when I started programming, it was Linux, C, C++, a little bit of Java. And uh, then I just loved Java because you didn't have to do memory management. But Python wasn't even really big. It existed, but it wasn't big when I started. Fifty years before me, people would say punch cards, right? <laughs> you know, and things like that. So, similarly, as I talk about Linux and programming and VI and Bash today you know, evolution of these frameworks is integrated development environment support and even things like tooling like notebooks, Jupyter, you know, abstraction. So it's really higher level programming level abstractions, domain specific languages, visual, no code interfaces, you know, and things like that. That's the evolution of these things, you know, and then you know, it outputs bindings or platforms or so everyone's sort of initial foray is you don't have to go in and compile against a particular Hadoop version or Spark version, the Java code or the Scala code anymore. You just jump into Zeppelin or Jupyter or whatever and you just go and you start doing it. You didn't have to worry about where it's deployed. It's got sent to a CloudFormation pod, you know, and it deployed to Amazon Terraform, (laughs) you know, and it was just out there, right? You know, so all of that stuff is easily templatizable, handleable for you, and and really, the reality is today, whether you're running on your laptop or in a cloud, it's very simple. You know you don't have to worry about that stuff. The challenge that y- you know your generation is going to have, I think, is with that power comes great I mean, sorry, with that flexibility comes great power being able to still ask the questions under the hood about why things are happening. Don't forget that, you know, be inquisitive, ask those types of questions, you know, cause you still need to know what's going on under the hood of that car at some
1: point. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of educational resources on like algorithms and data science, but there's like a very few people who like ML expert who actually like know system. And like the people who can combine both of that knowledge and those domains is definitely like a superstar who right, can write code that run in parallel and, and can use the cloud, stuff like that. So, um, I could definitely, that's one personally for myself, that's something that I try to learn more OS and uh, distributed computing, stuff like that. Finally, your most recent involvement with NASA in this project, a machine learning based analytics for autonomous rover system. More specifically, your team has developed two novel capabilities for future mass rover called Drive by Science and energy optimal autonomous navigation. Um, Yeah, so how how do the system work under the hood?
2: So one of the partnerships that we do in IT is we don't just only work in IT, we work with other parts of the lab. And so we have a really great partner in a guy named Masahiro Ono, who's the lead for the Mars Surface Robotics Group. Speaking of iPhone 1 processors, today, Mars rovers run off of something called the rad 750, which is a radiation hardened chip because cosmic radiation does bad stuff to hardware when it gets into space. So when you put stuff up into space, the radiation flips the bits, does crazy stuff to it. And so we only want to fly things that we've tested that we know are resilient to cosmic radiation. And so thus, Mars surface assets like rovers and other things, spacecraft, they're all running these rad hard chips, but the rad hard chips are technology behind, you know, they're like iPhone one processors. So you can't do like deep learning or machine learning on them. It's all simulated with human in the loop. But tomorrow, that's gonna to change. In the future, we'll have high-performance space flight computing, GPU-like multi-core chips that are radiation-hardened. And today, we have things like Snapdragon from Qualcomm that aren't necessarily like, fully radiation-hardened, but they're good enough. And you know, on technology demonstrations, like on our Mars helicopter, Um, you know, the ingenuity uh, that's on the Perseverance rover that's going to Mars. It's a technology demonstration. We can use things like Snapdragon to demonstrate that. So in the future, we'll have GPU-like computing on board. And so when we do have that, you think about the killer apps that you would need. What type, if we could run machine learning on board and deep learning, what would we do? Well, one of the use cases is drive-by science. It kind of works like this. Today, we can get back 200 images a day on our thin pipe from Earth to Mars because it takes eight minutes round trip time to send a command and get data back. So we can only get 200 images today to decide what to do the next day, tomorrow, to do planning. What if tomorrow we could use that same thin pipe, but we put a million captions back of images? We ran deep learning on board, we had the rover basically run an image captioning algorithm like Google show and tell, and it gives us a million captions. And if they're scientifically validated and believable, well that's a lot more point density, surface density, and we know more about the environment we're in. That's drive-by science, that's that concept. Similarly, Energy aware, optimal auto navigation is the rover sees where it's going. And today it's static plans about where to drive up a hill or where to go. And the plan is uploaded tomorrow. Let it see in the distance that there's sand out there and that when it gets to that sand, it's going to have to use or drive the wheels with more power to catch them because it's sandy. Whereas let it see if there's rocks in the distance, it's going to catch the wheels better on rocks, use less power, plan your power that way. And that's energy aware, optimal auto navigation running Machine learning, deep learning on board to decide better paths for navigation. That's those two things.
1: Awesome. Yeah, thanks for clarifying on, on those details of so the system, the image captioning algorithms. that sounds fascinating that you never really think like, what was the use case besides just like video captioning, but now you can see like potential impact of that. So anyway, let's go back to your involvement with the, the Apache Software Foundation. So yeah, you've been a project management committee member for various projects such as Lucene and, and Nudge. You also serve on the board of directors between 2013 and 2018. How do you quantify the impact of the foundation for the software industry in the past decade? And uh, what are some of the trends in open source development that you are most excited about in the next few years?
2: Yeah, so for me, the impact of Apache is that it's a nonprofit organization, a 501c3 that had a billion dollar valuation, basically, you know, I mean, it's probably contributed to billions of dollars of software. If if Hadoop and Spark are truly billion dollar industries, they wouldn't be here today without Apache. And thus, you know, it's, it's a billion dollar type of place, you know, all for the cost of a nonprofit, you know, that maintains a very thin operating budget. So it's it's hard. I mean, that's that's just a direct way to quantify it. You know, in fifty years they're gonna be studying Apache's immeasurable impact on the development of software. So that's what I feel about. I'm not as involved in Apache nowadays, but you know, at the time I was on the board, being on the board of Apache at that time was like being plugged into everything important in software that was going on from projects starting up to companies and how they were using it to big decisions and open source licensing and all of that. And so for me, working up and down the foundation, you know, kind of rising up and eventually being involved in that, it was immediate impact and very, very like important things and influence and decisions kind of related to that. How am I excited about things nowadays in open source? I mean, so the things that excite me in open source nowadays really are open source as it's applied to like machine learning. So ML ops is big for me, big framework development, watching the machine learning places like Google and TensorFlow or Facebook and torch and everybody watching them go through the same growing pains and also, you know, things that projects went through at Apache and, you know, the difference nowadays is that there's a lot of influence of Apache that exists in engineers you know, that already kind of have or are imbued with those qualities. And these places and companies are really practicing that modality already. You know, so TensorFlow is a healthy open source project. It's a great community. They're doing awesome stuff. Um, I've, I, you know, I'm not as active in really Torch or Facebook, but I hear they're great too. And, you know, MXNet is a big, so that's really, I'm really excited about MLOps and frameworks for machine learning. I'm also excited about the future of, um, learning with less labels. So using zero-shot, one-shot learning for machine learning. So collecting less, because tra- training data is so expensive and so hard and non-abundant, you know, but it's so needed to do good machine learning and people don't get that. But these approaches for zero-shot, one-shot learning, really excited about. And the other big thing I'm excited about is AutoML, you know, in machine learning, like automating data science, automating model development, selection, evaluation, all of those things.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Th- thanks for sharing that. And In 2013, you wrote an article on nature called a vision for data science in which you argue that for advancement are necessary to get the best of big data, algorithm integration, development and stewardship, diverse data formats, and people power. Can you uh, unpack that argument?
2: Yeah. So, you know, at the time I had just finished doing all the mission work. And basically my realization was that there was too much of a division between data archives, which were funded at a big level, like hundreds of millions to you know billions of dollars in the U.S. and around the world. And their main role is just to preserve the data, to keep the bits. They didn't do any analytics, no algorithm processing, no big data processing, no enrichment. And that's where all the value chain is for the business. You know? However, if you looked at value chain for business and science algorithm processing and all that, they were funded at a minuscule level compared to that. One one hundredth of the level of just preserving the bits and the archives and stuff like that. So the first argument in that paper is, why are they different? Fund them the same way. We don't need archives. The archives and the science processing system should just be the same thing. You know. And the value chain should be associated with the preservation you know, and the volume and the velocity, the value and the veracity. The value chain should be part of that. They should be one thing. You should fund them the same way. Then beyond that, um, the other thing is when you do that, there's all this focus on data formats and there was a big thing is that we need a unified data format. We're going to get, you know, there are these panaceas, JSON, you know, whatever, you know, there are these things that we're going to have a unified data format and that's going to be the way that everything's easy to understand after that. My argument was, is no, you're not. You're never going to have a unified data format, embrace the heterogeneity, but use technologies like digital fish or things like Tika or nowadays things like deep learning and machine learning to basically level the playing field of the heterogeneity, you know, to unlock the text, the metadata, the understanding from the heterogeneity. You're never going to stop inventing file formats. Everyone is going to do it. That's their creative value pipeline. That's going to keep happening. So you need tech to basically you, you get it out, get the data out and the text from the heterogeneity, which will never change. And then the final argument is when you're doing that, you need to have people power and open source is the way to do it. You need to have a relationship with the open source community to drive that because that's going to drive your value, your your future generations of people working on this. And data science really is open source. And that's why so many people who are building open data science frameworks are open source people and you know, it's transparency and everything. That that was the argument of the paper, so.
1: And then, I guess, in the past seven years or so, did you see your vision being accomplished?
2: I don't know. I, I turn the question back to you. I mean, do you believe what I just said? I, you know, I mean, have you seen it as a student? You know, uh, you know those I, things?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, I mean, definitely working with diverse data formats, like working with audios, videos, certainly a lot of exposure, a lot of tutorials on that. In terms of, yeah, methods for integrating diverse algorithms Yeah, I would say, obviously like this, there's a lot of, you know, lectures on the different type of algorithms. So I would say that front is nice. I don't have much knowledge about sort of the development and stewardship on the science process. That's probably like for professors, you know, people who (laughs) who have the the network regarding that. In terms of people power. Yeah, absolutely. I think these days, you know, as a student, you use Scikit-Learn, you use PyTorch, you use Keras, right? So all of them are are open source. And if you have any question, you can just, literally you go to the GitHub page and ask the question, you're contributing. So I would say like machine learning is, is open source, that culture of sharing your code, of reproducibility and ethics to keep track of your results and open source your code is, is definitely uh, one thing that, that pushed this field towards progress in the past three or five years, i say at least, and probably in the future as well.
2: Yeah, I would agree with you. So, I mean, I, I think the paper has stood the test of time on the stewardship algorithm processing front. The cloud has really stepped in to fill that role. And this kind of goes back to my comment a little bit, is so much is in the cloud now, coupled analytics, coupled scalability and things like that. And even these former archive systems that got such a big budget, they don't have those big budgets anymore. And they're having to realize them combined with the processing in the cloud for, you know, cheaper costs and things. And so, you know, the one thing I didn't predict was the, you know, rise of the cloud in science, but really that they've kind of stepped in to fill what I was kind of calling for in that first part you know, of the paper. So, so anyways, I, I'm glad that you've seen at least some of the things in your area that you've seen. I think the paper has withstood the test of time.
1: Okay, so currently you are working on the second edition of uh, Machine Learning with TensorFlow, a technical book with Manning that teach the foundational concept of uh, machine learning and the usage of the TensorFlow library to build powerful models rapidly. What has been the biggest challenge that you encountered during the writing process thus far?
2: The biggest challenge for me was really getting access to the systems that I needed, you know, to basically go from your laptop to doing distributed training and machine learning. I mean, the first edition of the book is a great book. I read the first edition and then, you know, I completely rewrote most of it, you know, for the second edition because. You would say things like, and you'd see in the first edition, oh, you go build a facial recognition system, you know, rebuild VGG face. Oh, it's easy. And then you go out and you find out VGG face isn't on the internet anymore. It's just a bunch of pointers to URLs that don't exist for face pictures. And you realize all the issues around disseminating pictures of people's faces and legal things or, you know, things like that. You, you know, go and train a seek to seek, you know, algorithm and you're like, well, this is taking a long time on a CPU. Oh, it's because you actually need a GPU if you don't want it to take 92 billion years or things. So things like that. And um, that was a big challenge. And so for me, over the nine to kind of 12 months of learning the first book, going through building a ton of Jupyter notebooks, exercises, a Docker, all of that kind of gap fill you know for me the big contribution of this book is you know a updated code you know to uh, even now the latest version of tensorflow 2.3 all of our notebooks we have a branch and now it's been integrated into the master that upgrades it to all of tensorflow 2.3 stuff so it's upgraded to that but additionally the other things that are the real value add i think from the book are the recognition that the data and getting it matters and you shouldn't have to go out and comb through the internet to get all the data you need the data Recognition of data cleaning, Uh, that wasn't really sort of recognized in a lot of other machine learning books. I spend 80% of the book just saying how you prepare the data, which is a key thing. Using, you know, not just TensorFlow, but and friends. You know, the libraries like Scikit, the libraries like Pandas, you know, Matplotlib. How do you bring data together? Do EDA, do the whole pipeline. And then once you get it ready for TensorFlow, how do you use its nice bells and whistles, its data set, its estimators, its, its API, for machine learning and how to use things like TensorBoard to watch it, to watch the values of variables, to watch their gradients. And so that's been the big contributions of this version of the book. So.
1: I assume that you also have to personally learn a lot of things about TensorFlow, right? And keep up to date with that. How, how do you keep track with the development of the library?
2: So, I mean, the open source development I do nowadays is mostly on TensorFlow. I've had patches contributed to the models package. I fixed bugs in the CIFAR 10 model. I do track the development of it. Google's head of applied AI, Scott Penberthy, who is a TensorFlow guru and a BERT guru. He wrote the foreword to the book. I'm very much you know, in touch with Google. I'm a fan. It's my preferred framework. I'm not a torch person, I'm a TensorFlow person. You know, that's a choice everyone you know, needs to make is, you, you can kind of learn all the frameworks you know, too, but at some level you specialize in something. It's the thing I learned because the initial book that I read taught me a lot about machine learning. I mean, the last 24 months of my life have just been real, real deep in, in machine learning and deep learning, you know, I've seen
1: the light. Okay. Thinking about your experience in academia and industry, what do you see to be the difference and similarities between these two work environments
2: academia and industry don't have to be so different the big differences are deadlines value and discipline um, in my mind so in academia deadlines are soft or can be squishy in industry they're not you have to meet you know deliverables and and things like that related to the value for that. In academia, the value is yourself. It's an investment in yourself. You're investing in yourself. You're learning in yourself. In industry or, you know, applied work in this area, the value is the value that you generate. Both, there is some self-value in that, but it's really value for the company or the organization or your teams or things like that. And then discipline, you know, really in academia, you know, it's very important. And eventually at some point, maybe you're at this, you learn a little discipline. You have to have a little to make it through. Academia proves that you can have some level of discipline, but in industry, discipline is what it's all about. You're there because you follow routine. You can you know, make contributions at various levels. You know, people that are successful in industry learn discipline. There's some you know, similarities there, but those are the big differences.
1: Deadline values and, and discipline. Finally, you were born and raised in Los Angeles and have spent all of your professional career there thus far. How could you describe the tech and data community in uh, Avae?
2: Dispersed? (laughs) I would say dispersed. LA is an amazing place with amazing innovators. The whole Silicon Beach thing recently that's kind of popped up, you know, related to both entertainment and tech is, and Snap, you know, and all that, all those, those are great. LA has always had the big engineering aerospace companies, and there's a lot of innovation that happens there. Honeywell Aerospace, places like this, Boeing, these types. So, you know, there's always this sort of west side, west coast, entertainment, aerospace, you know, things like that, where I really have spent most of my time and grown up again in northeast LA, in real kind of traditional downtown LA and things like that, you know, up here in Pasadena. I would say there's there's definitely a lot of innovators. JPL is kind of a, a key for that. You know, they're really a gem. Caltech, USC, you know, from an education perspective. We have lots of, of engineering innovation, business innovation, aerospace innovation, and a tech, a budding tech industry around those areas. But basically, in terms of like the products, you know, that we're producing, snapping down here and having its main offices down here is a big deal. It didn't only have and originate up there in NORCAL and things like that. So, you know, I see some kind of growth and some things happening. There's a big vibrant pre-pandemic meetup community. So that's nice. You know, there was I know there's a number of, of things going on for that, and I would participate in it. And then also just the education system, which is really the talent pool and things like that. We mint a ton of places that we put back into LA in various areas and, and things like that. So for me, like, it's never a question. I had job offers everywhere forever. <laughs> I'd never leave LA. LA is, I mean, even during a pandemic, we have the best weather in the world and everybody's jealous of us. So that's us.
1: Absolutely. I think, I think that's sort of bring out the idea of the diverse industry and bring out a different ideas different sort of entrepreneurship right like you mentioned tech being built around these communities in education in um, entertainment and in um, aerospace engineering so that definitely a different flavor compared to uh, say the valley or in the east coast uh, which is more like finance and marketing dri- driven great to hear join insights on the front yeah so chris at this point of our conversation i want to move on into the final closing segment in which i'm gonna ask you three uh, rapid fire questions and then you know I can just give quick answers for them Number one, name three people in the information retrieval and data science universe whose work you admire.
2: So Doug Cutting, the founder of Lucene and Hadoop and so forth, I'll always admire Doug's work for, you know, originating those projects. I would also say probably Hillary Mason, the work that she did at Bitly, you know, the work that she did at Cloudera is usually doing really interesting stuff in machine learning and Python and things like that. And then finally, you know, I would say probably this is sort of a big toss up. But for me, it would probably be Juka Siding when he was very active in the development of search engine software and content management systems from Apache and Adobe. Uh, And I, I think he might work at Google now. But yeah, those would be the ones I would say.
1: Second question, name one book that you could recommend for people to develop a better data driven mindset.
2: Better data-driven mindset. So this is sort of an interesting, this is an interesting one. I would say this is more of an innovation book, but it teaches you more, I think, about ways to kind of manage yourself in an, in an IT environment. It's a, it's a short book. It's called The One Minute Manager. And it prepares you basically for leadership by focusing on the things that matter and data is one of them. So I would say The One Minute Manager.
1: Finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the aspiring scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about?
2: Gosh, uh, I tweet too much already. What would I tell the aspiring scientists? So I would say anytime you hear a, the tweet would be, let's see if this fits in uh, the 240 characters. I'd say anytime you hear somebody give you the outputs of a model, ask what the inputs were ask what the confidence on those inputs were. And then when you get the outputs, ask what the bias are. And I don't hear that asked enough from all ends of science or politics or things like that. We're just so quick to kind of accept everything. More people need to ask that. And the dismissal usually in journalism and other things as well, we don't have time to delve into that, but it's the most important part.
1: Yeah, that's the most important aspect of science, which is asking good question and asking why, right, why things happen. And I think that's a brilliant way to end our conversation. So yeah, Chris, I really enjoyed chatting with you today, learning about your wire engine career at JPL, your work at USC, and some of your contribution to the Apache Software Foundation. A lot of interesting insights in the development of information retrieval and, and search engine, your involvement with a variety of NASA mission and a variety of space and, and Earth Science mission couple of interesting books on Motica and TensorFlow and we a lot of materials that we've gone through and I will be sure to include it, all the links to the resources in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look and enjoy uh, going through some of this material uh, as I did so Chris I uh, really enjoyed this and I hope you had a great rest of your day
2: it's been a pleasure James thank you so much
0: well. That's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.